about 27 years ago, uh, in two and a half weeks, actually, we'll celebrate our 27th, Esther and I will celebrate our 27th anniversary, and she proofreads my sermons for me, and before she proofread it, it said 28, and so she was like, babe, we've only been married 27 years, and I was like, oh, seriously? Well, fix it. So, uh, last week, just so everybody knows the way my brain works, last week I mixed up my fourth, third and fourth sons, I don't know how many of you remember that, but I said, uh, my third son, Joshua, and Elijah hollers from the wings, that's your fourth son, so... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I get them mixed up, obviously, but this week I did it with my anniversary. But I can still actually remember that night we got married very well. It was the hottest day of the year, um, of course, August 8th, and it was brutally hot. And the air conditioner in the little church where we got married could not keep, keep up with the heat from outside or the body heat from inside, so it was blazing hot. I'm obviously running with sweat. The week leading up was crazy. There were several moments I didn't think it was going to happen. It was, uh, it got really tense. Actually, like two days before the wedding, um, Esther and I are yelling at each other in the car. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, get out and call me when the woman I fell in love with shows up. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's, uh, that's the way the week before the wedding went. <laughs> My parents were against the whole thing. What's that? Judy's heckling from the wings over here. <laughs> My parents were against the whole thing, but once they figured out we were going to go through with it, like it or not, they tried uh, to be supportive, but um, it was pretty easy to see through, which uh, uh, Esther didn't care for much. Um, incidentally, once they spent about two months with Esther as their daughter-in-law, they decided they love her way more than they love me, and so it's pretty much been that way ever since, but... I remember not being able to breathe when the door opened and Esther standing there in her gown. Uh, people tell the story. They say my eyes filled with tears, but I don't think that's true. Real men don't cry. <laughs> yeah. I still remember the look on uh, her dad's face as he gave me her hand. Uh, he was trying to force a smile, and it was absolutely pathetic. And I've used it to tease him uh, ever since. But now that I have a daughter who's the age that we were, when we got married, it's not nearly as funny anymore. Um, so that's no longer a joke I tell. I remember the sermon. I still actually remember what the sermon was about. I remember wishing I had something to take notes on because it was a really, really good sermon. I actually checked my tux pocket because back then I was kind of new to Bible study and I didn't go anywhere without my pocket Bible and my little pocket notebook. And so any chance I got, I would pull out my Bible and read it. And since I didn't understand a single word of it, I would write questions in my notebook and wait till I got with somebody smarter than me and I would ask him, what's this mean, what's this mean? So I actually like checked my tux to see if I had my notebook on me and I did not, um, which is probably good because when I told Esther later that I wished I had my notebook, she was not very happy that she was not the only thing on my mind at that moment. I remember my vows. I remember we used the standard vows. But since I was raised Catholic, um, I believe that marriage was a powerful sacrament. Um, I believe that something... Uh, very sacred and real and tangible happened when we said these words, that something in the spiritual and the, and the natural transpired with the saying of, of some words in the presence of God and, and people. And, uh, and so I took it very, very seriously. And incidentally, even though I'm no longer Catholic, I still pretty much believe that. I didn't understand at that point in my faith journey what a covenant was. Um, but at the same time, I think I kind of did in my guts. Um, I knew that it had very little to do with the actual words, because at 19, I had no idea 
what it meant to have and to hold in sickness and health and richer and poorer and better and worse. I couldn't even picture what that might look like. In fact, I actually knew that I didn't know because a couple weeks before the wedding, I set Esther down. I kind of set this night aside. I told her I wanted to talk to her about something serious. We sat down and I told her, I don't believe in, in divorce. Um, and she kind of looked at me like, duh. And I was like, I was like, and we don't know each other that well, if we're honest. But even more, we don't know who we're going to turn out to be. There's no way we can know who we're going to grow into over the years. But in my opinion, whoever those two people turn out to be, they're stuck together because that's that's the way I see it. And and I was trying to be like very serious and sincere. And she uh, she looked at me and she goes, duh, <laughs> like uh, like she was like, of course, that's I didn't know that was a Christian thing. I thought it was like a me thing. And so she had to tell me, yeah, that's that's the way it works. I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, so that tells you uh, what I was like when she married me. Well, 28 years have gone by since that conversation. I can honestly say that I had no idea what was in store, what was ahead of us. And if I, if I had, I don't know that I would have done much differently, but I would have gone into it way more humbly because uh, I had no clue. In fact, to this day when I uh, perform or go to weddings, and I've kind of started looking around. It's always funny. The, the young people that are the same age as the... Uh, as the bride and groom are all like gushy and, oh, they're so beautiful. And, look at and the older people are like, mm, you just have no clue what's in front of you. You know, and it's not that you're like, don't do it. It's not like that. It's more like you're like, you know, they're so optimistic and they're so, you know, and you're like, whew, just wait. You've got a ride ahead of you. And it's okay that they don't get it because none of us did. Well, tonight's passage is almost like wedding vows, both in the covenantal language and in the naive optimism that informs this passage. Some theologians have called this David's manifesto, um, and it reveals the brand new king's attitude as he takes the throne, as he becomes king. And it's super important that we remember how we've kind of been tracking David's personal growth through this period of his life, because we have a tendency to look at our Bible characters as static um, personalities. You know, Abraham is just Abraham, always Abraham. We kind of forget that if you meet young Abraham, you're probably going to meet an entirely different person than you would find if you met Abraham 40 years later. None of us are the same 40 years later. And, and if we are, there's probably a problem. You know, that we've probably got something wrong if we haven't changed and grown and adapted over our life. And so we have a tendency to look at our characters as this kind of static, um, unchanging personality that we read about in the Bible. And the beautiful thing I've been saying this since we started about David and the way we get his art along with his narrative is that we get to watch his personality kind of grow and change. So if you read this passage and you and you didn't understand the way David changed and grew throughout his life, um, you can get this really, really mixed up. So we've worked through the ambitious, outdoorsy songwriter, soldier David, who had such a charmed life, everything he touched seemed to turn out good, um, writing his nature poetry. And we watched that kind of transition into the broody um, kind of victim, David, who learned how to pour out his most negative emotions um, before God. And then last week we got into just a little bit of kind of what was going on in his heart, maybe his personal theology, um, as he recounts the version of Saul dying and, uh, and his ascension to the throne much differently than the narrative tells it. The narrative tells it that David's out of the country, he's 
Saul kind of dies and David comes back. Judah was like, hey, you want to be the king of our tribe? And so he does. And it's seven and a half years before he becomes the king of Israel. And he doesn't really do anything to advance. He just kind of hangs out. And eventually the people of Israel come to him and say, would you be our king? You know, you're the one who's always led the armies of Israel. Be our king. And so David, you know, accepts the throne and spends the next 33 years as king of Israel. And then when he tells the story in Psalms 18, he tells it much differently. He says the, the heavens opened and God came down with flames pouring from his mouth and snow, smoke from his nostrils and the earth shook and the, and the, and the mountains quaked. And he reached down and saved me and, and put me on a rock. So David tells this much bigger, more dramatic story, which I think is the way David saw it. I don't think David saw a thousand little coincidences that put him on the throne. David saw God directing his people. God, the sovereign God, moving in pieces where he wanted them like a giant, you know, divine chessboard. And, and when he was ready for David to be king, he put David on the throne. So... At the end of the day, David said, God did it. It wasn't me. God did it. I did nothing to, to, to get this throne. This isn't my throne. God put me here. The Philistines who, it wasn't the Philistines who caused Saul's death. It wasn't Joab and David's army. It wasn't Abner. It wasn't anything else. God did it and deserves all the credit. That's where he kind of left things with Psalms 18. And it's important to keep kind of this humility before God's sovereignty in mind. Because if we don't, we'll get this passage all wrong. We won't, if we don't see this kind of ambitious yet nervous king, this uh, kind of, I, I don't know that I deserve to be here. Like we see one spot in David's story where someone's like, hey, Saul's putting his daughter up for marriage. You should go marry her. And he's like, I'm, I'm poor. How could I marry a king's daughter? Like so he just doesn't have this like, I deserve to be here thing. And if you don't kind of catch that almost nervous optimism, um, you'll read this psalm all wrong. So that's where we are tonight. David doesn't see like, I conquered this throne. I came, I took it, it was mine. Um, He sees God putting him here, God choosing him, and he's got the nerves that come with that. And I think that feeds into tonight's passage. So this is uh, Psalms 101, and it goes like this. A psalm of David. I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you as songs. I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come and help me? I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. I will refuse to look at anything vile or vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I have nothing to do with them. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not allow deceivers to serve in my house, and liars will not stay in my presence. My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city of the Lord from their grip. That's Psalms 101. Of course, the one thing that makes this psalm really fun is that we know the rest of David's story. We know that he actually kept this manifesto for about three minutes. So we know that, that he didn't actually follow through on this. But historically, this psalm and its lofty goals have made some pretty major um, ripples through the church, and especially where it intersects with the state. Um, in Europe, this became known as the prince's psalm. For years, they called this the prince's psalm. Luther, uh, on these eight verses, wrote an 80-page um, commentary on these verses and how this is exactly what any 
um, anybody in Christian leadership should strive for, that everybody, um, an officer or a magistrate or a, a, a king, back then they were called princes, should strive for. And he, and he expounded on it and how you could actually apply this to the daily life of a, of a king. It became very typical, um, I read in parts of Europe, that if a, a king or a magistrate or an officer of any kind messed up in their office, everybody from the town would mail them the 101st Psalm, a handwritten copy of the 101st Psalm, like, hey, just in case you forgot, this is what you're supposed to be striving for. Um, so this, in short, historically, no one much cared whether or not David was actually able to keep this psalm, whether he was actually able to follow through on his own manifesto. His plans were lofty and worthy, and this became the measure for rulers, of how you, the metric by which rulers were judged. Well, I spent the last couple of weeks struggling with this psalm, not really because of its content, but more because of its content in comparison to what we actually know about David's life and his rule and how things turned out. And this naturally drew me to other times when God's people kind of made these bold declarations and these huge promises, but didn't wind up following through the way they thought they would. Well, if you go back to the very first Pentecost, so the, the day the Israelites had been set free from Egypt, 40 day, or 50 days later, they're at Mount Sinai, God descends, thunder, lightning, smoke, and Moses comes down uh, from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And the people, he asked them if they intend to be God's people. Do you intend to obey every command of God? And here's how they answer And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded us. So Moses brought the people's answer to the Lord. Now, we have to give the people a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, because at this point, they didn't really know exactly what that included. They had just seen God dump some incredible plagues on Egypt and do some incredible miracles on their behalf, part the Red Sea, showing up in a pillar. So at this point, you're kind of like, whatever he says, I'm in. That stuff was amazing. I don't care how hard it is. We're willing to do it. So, But they didn't really know what that was going to entail yet. And so they're just responding to the earthquake, the smoke, and the fire. But Moses clears it up just a little while later. And after he had a more thorough understanding, it says, he, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, We will do everything the Lord commands. We will obey. So they're making these big, bold declarations. So this time Moses reads the whole covenant to them. They know what they're agreeing to and they agree wholeheartedly. Within 40 days of this statement, they got bored and made a calf out of gold and began to worship it instead of God. So they made it almost 40 days on this big promise. But God gives them another chance. He invites them again, fully informed. This time Moses kind of graphically spells out the blessings and curses that come with their answer. Uh, here's some of the blessings. If you fully obey the Lord, your God, and carefully keep all of his commandments that I am giving you today, the Lord, your God, will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord, your God. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. Your offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. Now, these actually go on and on for a while. I just kind of took a representative sample. Um, but this starts to sound like an infomercial, right? Like, and not only that, but, you know, kind of thing, like he's just pouring on. But he balances it 
by giving them, you know, kind of the flip side. And here's a sample of the flip side. But if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God, you do not obey all the commands and decrees I'm giving you today. All these curses will come and overwhelm you. Your towns and your fields will be cursed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be cursed. Your children and your crops will be cursed. Your offspring and your herds and your flocks will be cursed. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you'll be cursed. The Lord himself will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in everything you do until the, at last you are completely destroyed for doing evil and abandoning me. Uh, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease, fever, and inflammation, and scorching heat and drought with blight and mildew, and disaster will pursue you until you die. The Lord will cause you to, to be defeated by your enemies. Your corpses will be food for all the scavenging birds and wild animals. The Lord will afflict you with boils. The Lord will strike you with madness, blindness, and panic. You will be oppressed and robbed continually. You will be engaged to a woman and another man will sleep with her. That's just mean. Your ox will be butchered before your eyes, but you will not get a single bite of the meat. You will watch your sons and daughters as your sons and daughters are taken as slaves. Your heart will break for them, but you won't be able to help them. Believe it or not, this actually goes on and on again for quite some time. A couple chapters of these. Moses explains in graphic details everything that will happen if they don't, if they make this covenant, covenant with God and then disobey it. And despite all this, they agree. Yet again, they optimistically agree to the covenant. My favorite one, though, this is great. This is from Joshua. So Joshua takes over from Moses, takes him into the promised land. It's toward the end of his life. He's retiring, getting ready to die, whatever. He calls all the people together for kind of this big moment. And he kind of offers them a chicken exit at this point. So they're, they're in, but he kind of offers them a little bit of an out. It sounds like this. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your, that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're pretty familiar with this verse. Hey, the land is yours. If you want off the bus, now's the time. Pick a god. Pick a local god if you want. Pick the gods that your ancestors used. Or pick a god. Uh, it's up to you. And of course, the people are appalled. And they answer, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. They actually go on, they, they start to recount some of God's deeds. This is the God who saved us from Egypt, he part of the Red Sea. And they, they, they start to recount back to Joshua some of the awesome things God has done. How, we would never consider walking away from a God, but Joshua's not convinced. He offers them one more out. Then Joshua warned the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is holy and jealous, a holy and jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn against you and destroy you, even though he has been so good to you. People aren't biting. They're in it to win it. They're fully committed to Jehovah. They answer this way. No, we will serve the Lord. And this is where it gets good. Um, Joshua hears their steadfast commitment. He's offered them several outs. They won't take it. They're fully committed. They want to serve the Lord. And I swear, if this was a sitcom, this would be like an Emmy award-winning line. Um, because Joshua says this, All right then, Joshua said, destroy the idols among you and turn your hearts to the Lord God of Israel. Did you catch what just happened? It goes like this. Joshua says, pick a God. They say, Yahweh. Joshua says, too hard. Pick another God. They say, no, we want to serve Yahweh. Joshua says, okay, start here. Get rid of the idols you brought with you. Like... The idols you're carrying at this very moment that you're declaring your faithfulness to God. Maybe get rid of those. Yeah. 
You might want to start with the idols you brought. And the people are not even a little bit daunted. We will serve the Lord God and obey Him alone. Rule number one, have no idols. Alright, if you're going to serve God, you may want to ditch all those idols. Anyway, of course, the people broke their end of the commitment fairly quickly. We've got the story. As it gets into Judges, it's on again, off again. They follow God, they fall away, they follow God, they fall away. And true to His word, God did send um, a manner of curses to them. Eventually, the entire nation fell away. They get taken captivity into Assyria and Babylon. And much later, a group of small group of Jews get released from Babylon. They come back. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. They kind of come in to reestablish the the city of the Lord. And what is the very very first thing they did? Then the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God together with their wives, sons, daughters, and all who were old enough to understand, joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God. As issued by the servant Moses, they solemnly promised to carefully follow all of his commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. This seems to be something wired into the people of God to make these grand promises of obedience to the Lord. So when David writes Psalms 101, he's really just kind of tapping into this national motif. Um, this is just something the Jews seem to do. There's something diehard optimistic about the Old Testament Jews. So let's look back at Psalms 101, and here's the uh, hard part of a study like this. On one hand, it's really easy to read some of this stuff. I will be careful to live a blameless life. I will live a life, or lead a life of integrity in my own, own home. I'll refuse to look at anything vile or vulgar. I'll reject perverse ideas, stay away from every evil. I will not endure conceit and pride. Almost every commentator I read on this passage extolled David for these virtues. They, they, uh, they suggest this level of commitment from all Christians, like that we should all expect this kind of life from ourselves. As I said before, the late medieval church took this passage so far as to make it one of the, almost like their constitution, what they would expect out of a leader. The problem is every single person except Jesus, who ever made such a grand commitment like this, especially in the scripture, fell flat on their face. The Bible then records after these grand narratives how the people failed it, how they failed to keep their lofty goals and so it seems like the fall is also harder because of how lofty their expectations were. So as a realist, you can't help but read passages like Psalms 101 and kind of click your tongue at the poor, young, naive David who thought he was going to be able to accomplish so much. Give him a few years and a few more big sins and he'll mellow out, right? And this introduces attention. It's been a while since I've kind of pulled that word back into circulation. But this psalm is full of it because if you're like me, you don't do well with blind optimism. I'm not a natural optimist. I don't have a natural, like, everything's going to be great. I just, I don't have that. So when I read this, 
I, I kind of snicker. My, immediately I go to, yeah, he kept that up for a long time. You know, I won't look at anything vile or vulgar except Bathsheba. Like, you know, he just, he kind of had, he kind of failed on every point. But there's also something very wrong about going, why try? You're never going to get there. You know, I know I can't live a blameless life, so why even try? That makes me even more sick. So if I'm honest, I don't really know exactly where I would want someone like David to aim, but this seems high to me. But I don't know that I would want him to lower it either. Esther and I have this ongoing debate about how much to expect out of our children. She would love to see them do good things for good reasons, like be virtuous people just for virtue's sake. And I kind of go at it with this just automatic assumption that they're vile little sinners and they're not going to ever do anything right if I don't punish them and make them do it. Like, and so we kind of come at it from two different sides. And I'm sure the real balance is somewhere in the middle, somewhere in this tension that Psalms 101 brings up. See, at the risk of sounding like a motivational poster, I would say the only thing worse than aiming too high is not aiming high enough is if you aim too high and fail, I think that's still better than not aiming high enough. And I believe this is what the Jews in Jesus' day had done. They'd reduced the law of Moses to a list of commands that they could actually keep. They, uh, and then Jesus steps on the scene. And there's this rich young ruler who he's like, hey, how do, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, keep all the commandments. He's like, done, since I was young. Which that in itself is a... Like, and Jesus doesn't argue with him. He doesn't go, let's make a list here. You know, he just, he's like, okay, fine. Give away everything you have and follow me. But the fact that you would have somebody like that living in Israel, yeah, absolutely, I've kept all the commandments, um, tells you the way they had viewed the commandments. The one, the person that grabs Jesus' attention is this tax collector who's standing next to a Pharisee and the Pharisee's talking about all his good qualities and the tax collector can't even lift his eyes to heaven. And so he just beat his breast and said, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And I've always assumed the tax collector was very in touch with his own failures, very in touch with his own sin. But as I was working through this sermon, I was wondering if he wasn't just more in touch with God's holiness, with the real requirement that it would take to be holy. And and that showed him how far short he had come. See, the Pharisee felt high because he aimed low. And then Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard don't commit adultery. That's great. I say don't even lust. You've heard don't murder. I say that's great. Don't even get angry without reason. You've heard love your neighbor. I'm telling you love your enemy. Jesus is raising the bar. He's saying, you know, this, this bar you've set that you can step right over and, 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 and say, look, I'm holy. I'm great. I've kept all the commandments. I'm saying you've got the bar too low. So Jesus comes in, raises the bar, and then he tops it off with this. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. How's that for aiming high? Perfection. That's all you need is just be perfect. Perfection. And this is one of the fundamental tensions of the Christian faith. We have to strive for something that we can never achieve. And we don't dare lower the bar. Because then we're no better than a first century Pharisee. Our goal has to be none other than perfection. Like David, we must be careful to live a blameless life, even though we know that that's impossible. 
Paul wrestled with the tension this way in Romans 7. He said, I want to do good, but I don't. I don't want to do wrong, but I do it anyway. Paul aims high and falls short. And he concludes the whole matter with this line. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. What will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? You can see why I love the word tension so much. And this is the question I think Psalms 101 pulls up. I love David's heart. I love that he really does want to do what's right. I think we have to be very careful, especially with young people, to not squish optimism. A lot of times you hear these kids, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and everything in you wants to go, huh, you're not going to do half of that, trust me. You're going to get out there. And, you know, we want to, I think we've got to be careful not to do that. Let them, they'll, they'll figure it out. <laughs> like, unfortunately, probably the hard way, but we have to let people dream and aim high because I think when they do try and fail, that's where they find grace. That's where kids learn about grace. After Paul's lament over sin here, he cries out, Oh, what a sinful person I am. Who will free me from this? And he concludes with the answer, Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then he gets into chapter 8 where he launches into, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's answer was grace. It was grace. That was Paul's answer to the tension. See, when you talk about sin, the bar should be so high, so high, that you're just buried in sin and you have nowhere to go but grace. Like if you talk about sin and it doesn't drive you to God's grace, then, then your bar is too low. If, and I hate that I always go back to this. It's just a hot button. But if, if your idea of, of righteousness is like gays and not gays, and since I'm not gay, I'm righteous, is that your bar is too low. It's got to be up where you and the gays fail. Like where everybody... It fails and has to have grace. If, if you're not in a spot where you look at another sinner and you go, yeah, me too, brother. Like, I'm really God, glad God's grace covers us. Then your bar is too low. Any talk about sin should drive us to the cross and to grace and to worship. We're like, praise God, His grace covers me. I'm so glad I don't have to save myself because I couldn't do it. I think David actually understood this in this poem about how blamelessly he was going to live. David sneaks in this one line, and it's, there's only one line in the whole psalm that hints at it. He says, the psalm of David, I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you with songs. I will be careful of a blameless life. When will you come and help me? If David uh, had aimed for anything lower than blamelessness, he might not have needed God. If he, had, if he had lowered the bar to something he could actually accomplish, he might not have had to cry out, when are you going to come and help me? I can't do blameless unless you help me. See, the beauty of aiming high isn't whether or not we can achieve what we aim for. It's the fact that we are putting ourselves in a position where we absolutely know I cannot achieve my goals without God. If God doesn't show up and help, I can never do this. I need the grace of God. If we lower the bar even a little on what's required of us, we might actually be able to do it on our own. 
And that would be the worst thing that could happen. That is a terrible and dangerous place to be. We pray the prayer of contrition every week. God, forgive me for my sins. I've sinned against you in thought and word and deed, what I've done and what I've left undone. We don't do that as a dead ritual, and we don't do that because we're like fixated on our sins. We pray the prayer of contrition to say, my goal for the week was perfection. I did not get there. I need your grace. My goal for the week was way higher than I pulled off. My goal for the week was to love you with all my heart, all my soul, my mind, all my strength. My goal was to love everybody I bumped into as much as I love myself. I didn't get there. I need your grace. I need you to forgive me. Because I don't dare pull the bar down to something I can, I can accomplish and make myself feel good. I don't dare do that. The bar is perfection. I mentioned the rich young ruler. And my favorite part of that story is the disciples' reaction. We don't talk about this much. The guy asked how to be saved and Jesus tells him to keep all the commandments. He fires back, done, got it. Jesus says, okay, cool. Now give away everything you have and follow me. He can't do that. So he turns and leaves. But the really great part is the disciples, when Jesus turns back to them, he kind of says something about, man, it's really hard for rich people to get saved. Kind of turns back to the disciples. And I picture them all standing there, mouths hanging open. Because they say, the disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? I love the New Living Translation on this verse. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. That's the right question. This is the question that pops in your mind when you read Psalms 101. Who in the world can do that? Who can live blamelessly? Who can live with perfect integrity in their own home? Who can see to it that they're never look at anything vile or vulgar? Like, who can do that? That's the question that the disciples ask. Who in the world can do that? How can you achieve perfection? And Jesus' answer fits perfectly. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, this is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Sounds an awful lot like David saying, I'll be careful of a blameless life. When will you come and help me? I can't do it. This is my goal. This is what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for perfect. I'm aiming for blameless. I know I can't do it. So I need you. God, who can be saved? And he said, this is a work of God. This isn't something you can do. So how do we respond to this? Tonight's response is simple. Aim high. Aim so high that you can only get there if God shows up to help. And if you fail, and spoiler alert, you will fail. Praise God for the cross. Praise God for the cross. If your expectations of yourself aren't so high that you just walk around every day unbelievably grateful for the cross, if you, if you don't walk around every day knowing, I'm so glad he saved me because I could have never saved myself. If you don't live with that gratitude, then raise the bar. Raise it so high that you could never do it. Expect so much of yourself that the only place to go is the cross and say, thank you, God, that you saved me because I could have never saved myself. The goal was perfection. The goal was blameless. The goal was, was Jesus. And because we couldn't get there, he came to us. If you don't live every day relying on grace, then, your bar, then the bar is too low. You need, to, you need to aim higher. I think David had it right. 
when I was tracking through David's life and trying to figure out which psalms most closely fit which parts of his narrative so that we could kind of look at the narrative and the psalm together. And I bumped into this period of his life, Psalms 101. Everybody kind of universally agrees that it's his psalm about becoming king, his manifesto. And I struggled with it because, spoiler alert, David fails. He fails big time. But here's what I think. David sleeps with another man's wife, gets her pregnant, and to cover that up because he doesn't want it known that he got her pregnant, he tries to blame it on the husband. And the guy is such a good soldier, he won't go for it. Which is ironic because it's David's rule. If you go back in David's story, David, his men are hungry. They go to some Levites and he's like, all I've got is showbread. And David's like, can we eat the showbread? And he's like, as long as your men haven't defiled themselves with women. David's like, I never let my men sleep with women when they're on campaign. Like, I just don't do it. And so he calls Uriah in and he's like, "Uh, hey, go sleep with your wife. He's like, dude, I'm on campaign. Like, we don't do that when we're on campaign. Like, I can't. And so he doesn't sleep with his wife. And David's like, this is not helping. So he murders the guy. He has the guy killed. He has Uriah killed. Uh, And what's ironic, what we don't think about much, is in that day, any other king would have never batted an eye about doing that. They would have had zero compulsion about taking another man's wife. I don't know if you guys remember Abraham's story, but Abraham goes into a, a, a city and Sarah was so beautiful that David was, Abraham was like, hey, tell everybody you're my sister. Because if they know you're my wife, they will kill me and take you. Like, if, if we're brothers, then they'll just take you. <laughs> it's horrible. But she goes along with it. And, and sure enough, they come and take her and they don't kill him. Back then, that's what kings did. If they saw a beautiful woman and she was married, they killed the husband and took the woman. And, and it's, history bears it out. It's all over history. The men who were killed so that the king could get rid of the wife. And then David does it. He's king. He could do it. Except he's got this manifesto. I will live a blameless life. When David fails, he, he winds up writing some of the most gorgeous poetry on repentance. We're going to get into those in the next epic. And I can't imagine him ever coming to that place as, as, a, as a Middle Eastern king in that day who all he did was kill a man and take his wife, which was everyday business for a king. If he didn't have this expectation on himself to do better, I will do better. And so when he doesn't do better, his heart is broken. And he turns to God broken. And, and it has nothing to do with repent. Any other king could have said, hey, I'm king. Deal with it. That's what I do. That's what kings do. That's the privilege of being king. David can't do that because David has set this goal for himself. I will do better. I will live a blameless life. I will look on no vile or vulgar thing. I will not have pride or conceit. And because he's aimed higher, when he does fail... He has no place to go but God in repentance. And he cries out to God for grace. Have mercy on me, O God. If you aim for perfection, you will not get there. 
But what you will do is live acutely aware of how beautiful God's grace is. When you aim for perfection, it will birth this life of continual worship because you'll live in constant realization that God's grace is everything you live on. I think if we wanted to get really technical, Esther and I have probably broken all the vows we made 27 or 28 years ago. We failed each other in so many ways, it's impossible to count. But when we stood on that stage and we looked each other in the eyes and we promised to be the perfect husband and the perfect wife, we meant it. In our 19-year-old naive zeal, we meant it. We were not going to fail each other. And the one thing that 27 years of failing each other in little ways every day has taught us is that we need grace. We need grace from each other. We need grace from God, mostly. We desperately need God's grace. And praise God, He gives it freely. Lord Jesus, this table that is so dear to us represents Your grace. It represents You doing the work for us. You living the perfect life we couldn't live and dying the death we should have died so that we can know You. So that we can be with You. So tonight as we gather around this table and as we take this symbol, this sacrament of grace, would You let it birth in us just a heart of worship that we might leave here tonight with this unbelievable gratitude That even though we fail, you still love us. And even though we will never quite get where we should be, you still love us. So as we gather around the table tonight, God, help us to aim for perfection. And when we miss, to worship you for your grace, for loving us even in our failure. We ask this in Jesus' name.